Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Beerspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, we are in a sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we're dealing with a section that has to do with the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. After being delivered from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites had to walk through the wilderness in order to reach the promised land. And here in the wilderness, the Israelites learn about the character of God. God uses this testing time to reveal himself to his people, to prepare them for what is to come. Now, in many respects, the Christian life can be compared to Israel's time in the wilderness. Well, we are also on a pilgrimage, journeying towards our ultimate promised land, heaven. And God uses this wilderness journey of life to shape us and mold us and prepare us for what is to come. And in this life, we go through many tests and trials. And the purpose is not to disqualify us, but the purpose is to reveal God to us. Slowly but surely, we as followers of Christ are being conformed to His image. Now in this section on the wilderness wanderings, so far we have looked at two key tests. God tested the Israelites by the waters of Marah. He used this incident to teach them that He is their healer, Jehovah Rapha. The second test takes place as they continue on in this journey in the wilderness. They had nothing to eat. And God provided them with manna and quail. And through this test, they learned that God was their provider. We come now to a passage of Scripture where instead of God testing Israel, the tables turn and Israel tested God. Testing God is not a good thing. When you test God, it indicates a lack of trust. Now, this wilderness journey of life will bring moments of uncertainties. There will be unexpected twists and turns. The route may become unpredictable and sometimes even dangerous. And what do we do in those moments? We are left with a choice, either to test God or to trust Him. When you test God, you're insisting your way. You're forcing God to provide, to give you what you want. You make the provision more important than the provider. But when you trust God, you're saying, God, you are enough for me. It doesn't matter how hard this path may be. You have promised me your presence, and that's all I need. We're going to learn from a, a negative example today how not to be like Israel, how to trust God as opposed to testing Him. And towards the end of this message, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So if you're watching us online, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then have a piece of bread and some juice ready, and we will observe this together towards the end of this message. The scripture portion for today is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. If you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. 
the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Would you pray with me? Father, in the quietness of this moment, we calm our hearts. We focus our attention on you because we want to hear from you. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. So would you speak to us now through your inspired word, through the power of your spirit, you will personalize this message to each one of us that our lives will be transformed as we hear your voice and respond in obedience to you. So we commit this time to you, Lord, and to the leading of your spirit. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis published a collection of essays under the title, God in the Dark. Here's a well-known quote taken from the book. C.S. Lewis wrote, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. So the idea is God is judge and we humans are on trial. But Lewis goes on to write, for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dark. So when Israel tested God, they were on the bench and they put God in the dark. They were the judge and God was on trial. The wilderness was a hard place and the people faced one setback after another. Shortage of food, Shortage of water, shortage of resources, unpleasant weather, military threats. It went on and on. Of being freed from slavery, being delivered from Egypt, they were expecting life to be good, for the sailing to be smooth, the journey to be straightforward. They will reach the promised land in no time. The Israelites were not prepared for the harsh conditions in the wilderness. And they didn't realize God was shaping and molding their faith through these fiery trials before 
taking them to the final destination. Our text opens with these words in Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin and traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? We've seen this in the past. The Israelites were guilty of grumbling, complaining, murmuring. It started in small, isolated pockets and soon gained momentum and it infected the entire assembly. But now the complaining took on a different tone. The people demand provision. This is not a request, not a prayer, but an order, a command. Give us water. You brought us here, you better make sure that you provide for our needs. And they now quarrel with Moses. That's a significant word here in the text. Because the word used here for quarrel means to content. It's a formal expression of dissatisfaction with leadership. That word is used to bring an official charge. It has legal overtones. This has the connotation of bringing a case against a wrongdoer. In, a, in contemporary terms, it's like you're suing someone, calling somebody to court. And Moses' response was, hey, why are you quarreling with me? I'm not the one leading you. God is leading us. So you are questioning God's leadership over your life. You are putting God in the dark. Now the very next verse, nothing seems to change as people continue to pile up accusations. Verse 3 reads, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? <laughs> the people questioned Moses' motive. And in doing so, they were questioning God himself. Because Mo Moses was acting on behalf of God. And in the wilderness, the Israelites tested God. They accused God of abandoning them in the desert without any water. The people quickly lost sight of all that God had done for them so far. God had set them free from captivity in Egypt where they were slaves engaging in backbending labor, facing daily mistreatment and abuse. God defeated Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt. He opened the Red Sea for them. He provided them with manna and quail in the wilderness. And if that's not enough, he promised them his presence. God accompanied them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And after all that, after all that God had done for them, his people were ungrateful. The moment they ran into some form of discomfort, they grumbled. Oh, we have no water. Come on, God. You ought to give us water. How can we survive without it? Do you see what they were doing? 
They were taunting God. They were trying to twist his hand to get what they wanted. And that kind of an attitude communicated, God, we are your people and your job is to supply us water when we are thirsty. After all, you exist to meet our needs, to keep us comfortable. If not, why did you even bring us out of Egypt? Now, the final verse of our text nails it when it describes the underlying issue behind this sour attitude. Verse 7 of our text says, And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, that was the underlying issue. They were bringing this legal charge. They were suing God for abandoning his people. They concluded in light of the fact that our life is so difficult, that there are so many shortcomings and shortages, here's our legal accusation that God lacked the power to meet our needs. That he has not done a good job in taking care of us. He's not held on to his end of the bargain. God has broken the deal. Is he even among us or not? The fact that these accusations came after witnessing one miracle after another makes it all the more staggering. The miracles had become distant memory. And the Israelites made their trust in God contingent upon the demonstration of his power. That's how they tested God. You and I, we may not verbally express this, but we have to check our attitude to see if we're also guilty of testing God. When life gets hard, when things don't go our way, when dreams just come crashing down, when our prayers are not answered the way we want, we also wonder if God has somehow abandoned us, has let us down, has failed to be trustworthy. And we make our trust in God contingent upon what he does for us. The provision becomes more important than the provider. That's where the Israelites failed miserably. And sometimes we do as well. Thankfully, Israel is not a role model when it comes to this. In fact, we learn from their failure how not to be like them. But our role model is Jesus. We follow Jesus' example in all areas of our life. And we come to the Gospels, and what do we see? We see a parallel situation where Jesus is in a moment of great need. Jesus is going through a fiery trial. He desperately needed God's provision. Jesus faces the very test that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. Jesus goes through the exact temptation that the Israelites went through. Israel was tempted for 40 years in the wilderness with limited supply. And Jesus was tempted for 40 days. He was fasting. No food 
for 40 days, Jesus was famished. His physical body suffered from hunger pangs that most of us can't understand. Well, we get hunger pangs two hours after lunch. And Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. And in this moment of utter weakness and vulnerability, a Satan takes charge and tempts Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus, you're hungry. You're the son of God. You have every right to turn these stones into bread fresh out of the oven. Use your power for your selfish ends. It's an appeal to entitlement. Jesus, you deserve this. You are the son of God. Did Jesus have the power to turn stones into bread? Absolutely. This is the same God who had provided manna for his people for 40 years faithfully, taking care of the whole assembly of God's people. He can make peanut butter sandwiches out of thin air. But how does Jesus respond here to the temptation? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What that means is, the spiritual needs of a person supersede the physical ones. Our need for God is greater than any other need in our life. All along, that's the very lesson God was trying to impart to his people in the wilderness. A lesson that we need to learn. God is enough, more than enough for us. Now look at the second temptation that Jesus faced that has a clear connection to our text in Exodus. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, this is Scripture, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And now we come to that crucial question. Are we going to trust God or test him? Jesus responds to Satan from the book of Deuteronomy, where the reference is actually to the incident that happened here in Exodus 17. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So that's what we are looking at in Exodus 17, the incident at Massa, where the Israelites demanded provision, and in doing so, they tested God. They were saying, God, if you don't provide us water, then that means you're not among us. You are not even on our side. And when we demand provision from God, we're forcing him to act. We are twisting his hand. We are enforcing our will. We are coercing him to do something. That is testing God. Have you ever prayed, God, 
prove yourself by doing this for me. Lord, if you are indeed all-powerful, almighty, then heal me. God, if you are really involved in my life, then open this door. God, if you truly love me, then answer my prayer. That's not an act of faith. That is not trusting God. It's testing him. It's manipulating him. It's saying, God, we will believe only when we see you perform physical signs. And that's the area Israel repeatedly failed all through the wilderness. But Jesus passed this test in flying colors. Jesus refused to test God and he chose to trust him even in that dire situation in his life. Jesus overcame that temptation by holding on to this truth, God's presence is far more important than God's provision. We love God for who he is, not just for what he does for us. That is solid, unshakable faith. And Jesus shows us by his example that God is more than enough for us. That even if we are in a wilderness with limited food and water supply, we can still be content in God. See, when you can reach that place in your life when your contentment comes not from your circumstances, but from your communion with God, then you will be the happiest person in the whole universe. For God's presence alone can fill the deep longings of our heart. Israel had a difficult time understanding and grasping that truth. So they kept testing God instead of trusting Him. They were quick to complain rather than being quick to pray. Lack of water may have brought uncertainty in the people's minds. But God had everything under control. He was not surprised by the event. God was not unaware of their predicament. In fact, God had in mind all along to provide for his people. See, that's something we need to keep in mind when we face life's uncertainties. God is not unaware of your situation. He certainly is not surprised by your experience. He is in charge. He is in control. He has a plan. And at a precise time, he will make a way. Faith holds on to that promise, even when we cannot see it with our natural eyes. Faith also declares, Lord, whether you meet my needs or not, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to praise you because you are worthy of that. So we come now to the, the latter part of our text in Exodus 17 and see how the incident unfolds in verses 4 to 6. And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people 
take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. What we see here is an object lesson. God is compassionate. He doesn't rebuke his people for that attitude. You know, the patience of God in the book of Exodus is mind-boggling. It defies our human understanding. God is being sued for negligence by his own covenantal people. And what does he do? He settles the case publicly. He calls for witnesses. This is like a court scene. So the elders of Israel are called upon to observe what was going to take place. And Moses is commanded to use his staff with which he had struck the Nile, use the same staff and strike the rock, and out of that will gush forth water that will take care of the whole assembly. The verdict is clear. God is the supplier of his people's needs. He was not absent. His presence was with his people. And the text says something here that's fascinating I want to point out. The first part of verse 6 is translated, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. It can also be translated, I stand there before you on the rock at Horeb. In fact, the English Standard Version does that. It says in ESV translation, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, think of the context here. The Israelites are bringing a legal charge, an accusation. Is God among us or not? And God appears to them. He stands before them on the rock at Horeb. A stunning revelation of his physical presence, that he has not left them. And when we go through trials and uncertainties, it's natural for us to question God's presence. God, where are you? Hello, are you there? Have you abandoned me? Have you forsaken me? In the midst of those doubts, God speaks to us. I am right here by your side. I have not abandoned you, even though you may not feel it. I'm so close to you, and I'm upholding you with my strength. Somebody here needs to hear that today. Whatever you may be going through in life, God is with you. He wants to reassure you of his presence, and absolutely nothing has the power to separate you from his love. So that day, God appeared to the people on the rock to confirm his presence that he is with them. This is similar to the burning bush experience. A theophany, an appearance of God. God reveals his presence and guarantees that he is with the people. He calls all the elders of Israel to observe and be an official witness to that. There's certainly an element of mystery here, but we don't fully comprehend what all of that means. We know that no one can see God and live. 
But in a veiled sense, God reveals himself to the people just to reassure them that he was with them. Now, as we turn to the New Testament, it only complicates the mystery when the Apostle Paul makes an astounding claim that's clearly connected to our text. Now, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. We have a, a dilemma here that we are trying to understand in Exodus 17, an appearance of God, a theophany of God standing on the rock in front of the elders of Israel. And as you're trying to understand what does that mean, the mystery gets a little bit more complicated and the Apostle Paul says that rock was Christ. Now, I don't think he means that literal rock was Christ, but he's speaking figuratively here. The Apostle Paul sees that as a type or foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, you need to know something. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the center of the whole revelation of Scripture. Jesus doesn't just come into the picture in the first century world. He is co-eternal with the Father. There never was a time Jesus wasn't around. So Jesus is not just the focus of the New Testament. Jesus is the focus even of the Old Testament. And numerous times we see the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. And what we are seeing in the text here is an object lesson that points to Jesus. That Jesus is the spiritual rock who offers us living waters. See, just as that rock in Exodus offered physical water that quenched the parched throats of the people, in the same way Jesus is the spiritual rock who provides living waters that quench our parched souls. Jesus, in fact, says that in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Listen to these words. On the last and greatest day of the festival... Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So this was a Jewish festival called the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And during this festival, a priest would stand in front of the temple and with a golden pitcher in his hand, he will pour water on the altar of the temple. And that was to commemorate the water that flowed out of the rock in Exodus and quenched the people's thirst. And during this very festival, 
the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus stands in the temple court and issues this impassioned plea. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink freely because I alone can satisfy your soul's longings. See, among all of the uncertainties of life, in the middle of the disappointments and heartbreaks that we may face, here is an assurance, a certainty, a spiritual guarantee on which you can anchor your life. God is more than enough for us. When the soul cravings of our heart refuse to be satisfied by the material things and pleasures of life, and we come to Jesus thirsty, the good news is Jesus is not going to turn you away empty. Instead, Jesus satisfies you with his presence. He offers you living water. He fills you with his Holy Spirit, and your heart overflows with life abundant and full. For what does Jesus say here in the text? From deep within you will flow a stream of living waters. See, when you come to Jesus spiritually thirsty, Jesus doesn't just give you a sip of water or a single drink. No, Jesus fills you with his Holy Spirit. So you are saturated in the very life of God. You have the Spirit dwelling within you. So you don't just get a sip of water. You now have a, a stream, a never-dying fountain deep within you, the source of life. Living waters flow from within our inmost being. Isn't that powerful? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have an endless supply of joy, peace, a deep sense of contentment and wellness in our soul that the material things of this world can never provide. And that is the experience Jesus wants all of his followers to share. And that prepares us for all of life's uncertainties, all of life's trials, the ups and downs of life. So even when you are walking in a dry wilderness on the outside, you have living waters on the inside refreshing you and renewing you on an ongoing basis. So God's Holy Spirit will sustain you in your wilderness journey. Now there's yet another powerful thought in our text that will lead us to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. What does God say to Moses? He says, call all the elders of Israel. Take the staff that I gave you and you strike the rock and water will gush out of that rock. The rock on which God manifests his presence is struck smitten you know that day for the sour attitude that the people demonstrated they deserved to be struck they should have taken a beating as punishment instead God in his grace asked Moses to strike the rock that symbolized his presence 
and what a gusher sound. Can anybody see here a foreshadow of the cross? There on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. We should be the one receiving the beating, but he was smitten, beaten to a pulp. And as they nailed him to the cross and later pierced his side, water and blood flowed. And that is symbolic of the life-giving waters that we receive through the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died so we can live. He embraced judgment so we can go free. He bore God's wrath so we receive God's unconditional grace and mercy. An incredible exchange took place at the cross. And all of the spiritual blessings that we have today, joy, peace, shalom, wellness, access to God's presence. All of these blessings cost us nothing, but it cost God everything as he sacrificed his son for us. And with that in mind, we turn our attention to celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I want to hand it over to our campus pastors and our various campuses to lead in the distribution of the elements and partaking of it together in your campus. Let me remind us today, every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, it is an opportunity for our soul to feed on Christ, to drink afresh of the waters of life that He offers all who are thirsty. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and the Lord's Supper is a meal for you to strengthen your weary soul. The bread and the cup that we have here are symbolic of the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, God's sacrifice to reconcile us to himself. So would you take a moment now to just quieten your heart, to prepare yourself as we partake of the elements together. If there's something that you need to confess to the Lord, this is a time for you to do that. Maybe it's a heart attitude. Maybe you're guilty of grumbling and complaining and forgetting God's many blessings in your life. This is a time to pause and be filled with gratitude for the many great things God has done for you. After a moment of silence, I'll pray and we will partake of the elements together. we want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for the price that you paid 
on the cross. That Jesus, because of your death, we are forgiven. Our identity has been changed. We are adopted into God's family. We have access to your presence. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. There's so many blessings, God, that we have received from you. And we are grateful. We are truly a community of God's people who are grateful for who you are, for all that you have done. So even now as we partake of these elements, if any of us are feeling weary in our soul, that you will strengthen us. That you will minister your life to us. That our heart's passion to live for you will be once again rekindled. That our attitude will change from mourning into dancing, from complaining into rejoicing for all that you have done for us. So we invite your presence here, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask all of you to stand, and as you're standing, just prepare the elements and keep them ready by opening the, the wrapper on the top. It's the first layer to be able to get hold of the wafer, and then there's a, another layer that you need to peel so we can drink the juice. Jesus offers us living waters. When we drink of these waters, they are life-giving. That's how we find true satisfaction. The body of Jesus was given for us. So as you feed on Christ spiritually, may your heart be truly satisfied in Him and Him alone. Let's eat of this bread with gratitude. blood of Jesus was shed to reconcile us to God so we can confess today God you're more than enough for us let's partake of this with gratitude 